0: Before I ask you to take and turn in your Bibles tonight, uh, I want to bring a message tonight from one of the most sobering uh, passages in the Bible. And I think in many ways, uh, it's a passage that deals with missions. Uh, It's right in the heart of this passage. The reason I want to bring this is because I believe that one of the most neglected responsibilities that we have as Christians and I include me in that, we as Christians. Uh, and I'm certainly not taking liberty to make a judgment on anyone here, but each of us to judge our own life. That's what the Bible says. We shouldn't be concerned about how others judge us, but we ought to always be discerning of our own walk with the Lord, making sure that it's right. And one of the most neglected responsibilities uh, is our neglect sometime, to be as actively involved in witnessing and testifying uh, about what the Lord's done in our life to others who do not know Jesus Christ their Savior. You know, we uh, when we are at a church like this, and we've been to several in this Missouri and Kansas area, we usually grab the tracks from the church that we're in, and then wherever we go that week where we're there, we're passing out tracks for that church, inviting people. We were just recently down in a a church down there in, uh, um, was it was it West Stewart's church, or was it Brother, Be- uh, no, it was Brother Gary Berry's church in Belton. And my wife and I, uh, we went over to the Cracker Barrel, and a waitress walked up to us and started to service and so forth. And when we got done, of course, we tipped her, and then we always made sure we'd give her the track and so forth. <clears throat> she didn't say anything other than just thank you. We get to the church on that Sunday, And here's the waitress at the church. And she'd been a member there for years. But she said, I said, Amanda, I said, I didn't know when we gave you the track that that, uh, you were a member of the church. We were preaching it. And she goes, I know. She goes, I knew who you were. She said, I just wanted to see if you'd give me a track. (laughs) And she says, I was so glad when you guys left and said, Brother Randolph and his wife, you are the very first people that ever came to Cracker Barrel and has ever given me a track. You're the only ones that did it. And she said, and I was so glad that you did because I was testing you to see whether or not you would actually leave a track. Because she said, you say in the pulpit that you leave these tracks around. So I thought, okay, she doesn't know, he doesn't know me. We'll see if he leaves me a track. And I'm so glad that I did. (laughs) Because I don't always do. I don't always remember to do it. And uh, uh, so I just would say to you that, that uh, as I've said each night, it's easy to think of missions in the sense that we give money uh, to missions for somebody else to take the gospel out. When in reality, we do have a responsibility ourselves. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost shall come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses... Unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, ye shall be. You shall be witnesses. And he says you can't do that without the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you have to get saved. And when the, you get saved and you're walking with the Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit comes by. Really the power is given to us to be a witness. That's really the purpose of that power. He gives us the ability to be able to witness for Him. And so uh, I want to speak along that term tonight, but I'm going to look at a very difficult passage to preach, especially to a crowd probably where, well, I would say the majority probably already know the Lord, already know this very familiar passage. But here's what I'm hoping it'll do. I'm hoping that it will challenge some of you to be a little bit more cognizant about the lost in your own community and getting the gospel to them and being a little more proactive about being a witness to people that you're meeting every day. I would say that I'm probably not out of order to say that all of us here today, to some degree, met lost people. Whether it was on our jobs, or whether it was in the store, or at a gas station, or wherever you went today, you probably, for the most part, met people that did not know Christ their Savior. And if they die without Jesus Christ, we know they're going to go to hell. They're going to die in their sins. And I would say that probably if you've been like me at times, we get so busy thinking about ourselves, we forget to even be a witness to the very people that we meet. And as a result, many of these people that we've met that we never witnessed to will die and go to hell. Let me say this to you, that there's a lot of, there's a lot of opinions today in our society and a lot of ideas as to where a person goes after they leave this life. I'll give you just a few of the opinions that people have. There's some that believe that when you die, you go into limbo. Do you know limbo's not in the Bible? Some believe that when you die, you go to a place called purgatory, and that you go there and spend a period of time in penance for your sin, and then you're released out of purgatory. Purgatory is not even in the Bible. Uh, when you think about it, there's others that believe in, uh, that you die like a dog in the street. That when you die, that that is the end of life completely. Life is completely over. And you never. It, there's nothing after that. There's people that believe that. There's people that believe that some, when you die, that your soul sleeps in the grave until God comes and awakens the soul. And they call it soul sleep. We don't don't find that in the Bible either, where the soul ever sleeps when a person dies. We find just the very opposite of that. Then then we find that there's people that believe in reincarnation, that when you die, you uh, come back as something else. That's that's pretty typical to uh, those that uh, live in India and so forth. They believe in reincarnation. We had a guy that started a a Chinese church next to our uh, auditorium here a few years ago. He's not there now, but he He was, and they ran about 50, 60 cars, and people would go in. And so when he was first there, they had had gone to Tibet to get a monk, a Chinese monk, um, to come over and minister to them. So I was right next door, so I said, you know, I ought to go over and meet my new neighbor. So I went over and knocked on the door. I mean, he's a soul Jesus died for too. And so I knocked on the door, and he was a very gracious guy. And you've seen the monks before in the orange outfit and, uh, you know, the bald head and that kind of a thing. And, and uh, so <clears throat> he invited me in and so forth, and I was visiting with him for a little while. And he said, have you seen my website? And I said, I have seen your website. He said, well, then you know I've been reincarnated 15 times, and I'm in my 16th life. And I said, now, let me get this clear. I said, as I understand reincarnation... That if you served right and faithful and all that, is that when you die you come back in a better state than you died? He goes, that's correct. And I, I didn't say anything after that. But I'm thinking, I'm looking at this guy and I'm thinking, this is what you get after 16 reincarnations. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking in my mind, what in the world did you look like 16 lives ago? <laughs> if this is the best you do and say, I don't want reincarnation, you know. And so, but we don't find reincarnation in the Bible either. Some believe that, in fact, most believe worldwide that everybody that dies goes to heaven. You know, it's amazing to me. It it, it amazes me that that if I'm not doing the funeral and I attend a funeral, everybody's preached into heaven. Doesn't matter who they were, they're always in a better place. And I know they're doing that for the comfort of the family, but... That's just not true to the Bible. In fact, none of the things that I've mentioned are in the Bible. Limbo, reincarnation, die like a dog in the street—you know, go to purgatory, whatever. As some, some just don't. Some just believe that everybody goes to heaven. That's not true. But we—but but here's the thing: we only have one reliable and credible source of truth available to us today in this life, and that's the Bible. To know where a person really goes when they die. And, and really, God placed in the Bible this account so that you wouldn't have any question at all of where a person goes when they die. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, to turn to a very familiar passage of Scripture found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 16. And I want you to bear with me Through this message tonight, because you'll have a tendency to say, well, I'm saved. this doesn't apply to me. I think I can get it to apply to you very quickly here, if you'll just give me some time. And if you're able to stand with me, uh, just out of honor and respect to the reading of the Word of God tonight, uh, if not, then you may be stay seated. But I'm going to begin reading in verse number 19. The Bible says, there was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple, and was buried and in hell he lifted up his eyes being in torments notice it's plural there not just being in torment but being in torments and seeth abraham afar off and lazarus in his bosom and he cried and said father abraham have mercy on me and send lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for i'm tormented in this flame But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all of this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Every time I read this passage of Scripture and I think about this passage of Scripture, it always moves me to be a better witness for God. Because I'm always reminded of the people that if they don't get the gospel, they're going to go to this place. And I'm going to try to my best tonight to try to describe to you what's in the passage here about what hell is really like. Do you know that really, uh, if you really study the Bible, the Bible really alludes to, the, to hell more than it really does heaven? It speaks about heaven. But I'm telling you, if you look for this place, you'll find it in the Old and the New Testament. And it's always referring to the same place, this place of torment. And So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get right into this message tonight. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have uh, to be here again tonight. Thank you for these very faithful people that have been so faithful every night to come out for this missions conference. And Lord, I pray that you'll help to have them give attentive hearts tonight, that they might learn something from this passage. Maybe they haven't seen, Lord, I'm not going to give them anything new. There's nothing new under the sun, but it might be new to them, even though it's not new in the scriptures. And you might reveal some things tonight to them that might motivate them and motivate me again to be a little bit more proactive about being a witness and to realize that every time that I overlook someone, that someone that I've overlooked is a potential person to go to this horrible place. And we'll ask you to bless the services tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Before I go any further, I want to make it very clear that what we just read in this passage of Scripture is not a parable. There are many, many parables in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, the Gospel of Luke has the most parables of all the, of all the synoptic Gospels. And, and yet, this is not a parable. Uh, it is not referred to as a parable. A parable in the New Testament was simply an earthly illustration or a story designed to convey a more clear spiritual truth to its audience. And Jesus used parables. In fact, the word parable comes from the word to see. So really a parable just helps us to see from a physical standpoint the spiritual truth that he's trying to convey. And yet when you read a parable, he'll almost always give you the parable and then he'll explain the parable and the explanation of it is to give you the spiritual truth of it. And since there's no explanation of this, and the fact that it's not called a parable, it's not a parable. Uh, on top of that, the reason it's not a parable is because Jesus never one time in all the Bible, when he used a parable, did he ever use real common people or common names of people that existed at that time. Uh, he just never did that. Uh, he would use a a, a Fictional story or something about sheep or something they could relate to, and then he would explain the parable to them to get the spiritual truth across. But here here it's not a parable because we have common people and common names that existed and lived upon this earth. For example, in the story, there are three men's names that are mentioned one is Lazarus, the other is Abraham. Was he a real person? And Moses is mentioned here. Was he a real person? And Lazarus was a real person. He wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have come up with a fictional person and put it with two regular people that lived upon the earth. These, are, these three people that he's mentioning here, and notice he didn't name the rich man. He didn't give his name. And I think that's just out of pure concern for maybe his relatives, that if they'd have given his name, they would have known he went to this place. So he just said it was the rich man. And Jesus is just being kind to whoever this rich man was related to, so they would really never really know if that rich man was their uncle or father that went to this place. That's how gracious our God is. And so this isn't a parable because he talks about Lazarus and Abraham and Moses. I was reading through some of the Bible scholars on this particular subject. I didn't find one that believed it was a parable. Every single one of them believed that it was a real actual account of the lives of two men here, Lazarus and the rich man, whatever his name was, that actually lived during the days of Christ. And they're both going to die. And God is giving us insight as to exactly what's going to happen to both of them. And it's given to us so that we'll know exactly what happens to a person when they really die. Now, what makes this passage hard is I have relatives that I know did not know the Lord, or as best I know did not know the Lord. And so when I read this, it's very difficult uh, to think of them in this place going through these torments. That's what. why most preachers don't preach on hell. Because we all have family and friends that, that are probably in this place, and we don't like to think of them in that, so we'd rather think of them in a better place. And, and because we think in that terms, we kind of block hell out of our minds, even though that we're Christians and we know there is a hell, we know there's a heaven, but we'd rather not think about hell much and, and I would just say, you need to think about hell more often because it'll motivate you to be a better witness. Because when you're not thinking about hell, you're not going to give the track. You're not even going to think about it. But if you're thinking, hey, this place is a real place. It literally exists. And the Bible tells us exactly where it exists and whether it's still there and all of that. And so it, it's not a parable. It's, uh, uh, in fact, 65 times in the Bible... The Bible uses the word hell in the Old and the New Testament, and even more times where the word is use, synonymously interchangeably used with the word grave or pit, uh, which is in several cases refers to this very same place. And so here in our text says it's common in many other places in the New Testament, whenever hell is mentioned, it's always described in the same way. It's described as a place of torments. It's described as a place of anguish. It's described as a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's described as a place of thirst. It's described as a place of sorrows. There's no no positive adjectives that are ever given to hell. There's no positive anything in hell. It's always a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth and and starvation and separation and, and, uh, and, and no mercy and no help, no comfort. It's how it's described. And let me remind you that before Jesus had come as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, I know that you know this already, but people, uh, the heaven as we know it today, the righteous souls in the Old Testament, or up until Christ came, those righteous souls could not go into heaven when they died because heaven was not yet prepared or open to receive the righteous souls. So prior to Calvary, all the way to Adam's day, when a lost man died from Adam to the time Jesus came, up until that time, till he died, a lost man would die, his body would go to the grave, his soul would go down into hell. And the Old Testament calls it Sheo in the Hebrew, Hades is the Greek word, hell is the English word, they're all the same place. And so when a, when a lost man died, his body would go to the grave, his soul would go down into Sheol, and then when a saved man or a man by faith died, his body would go to the grave, just like a lost man's body goes to the grave, and, and, and the righteous man would also go down into Sheol in hell. Now, here, here's why we know that, because prior to that time, hell was divided into two compartments or two areas. One was an upper compartment or an upper place, and we know the upper place was the place of comfort or Abraham's bosom. We know it wasn't down, it was up because the Bible says that the rich man lifted up his eyes. So that tells me he was looking up, and he seeth Abraham in another place. All right? And so they would there was a place called Abraham's bosom, and then there was the place of torment and between these two places was a great gulf that was fixed between them to where they could a man that was down in the place of torment that was lost his soul his spirit that's there could look across that great gulf and he could see those that were in the place of comfort because the bible says he lifted up his eyes and he he cries out to abraham he, he's literally speaking across this gulf and he's asking abraham to send Lazarus that he can also see who was once upon the earth begging at his gate, he can see this man Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And he's asking Abraham, would you send Lazarus, who's in your bosom, who's having fellowship, to dip his finger in water and come over here and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, can't do that. Because there's been a gulf God has fixed between us so that nobody from our side can pass down to where you're at and nobody in, from where you are can pass over to where we're at. So if you could draw a circle, in, and the Bible tells us, and it's very clear, that hell, even to this very moment, is in the bowels of this earth. It's not out in space somewhere, it's in the center of the earth as you stand on the surface of the earth and walk around and you do your jobs, below us is a place called hell. And there's, there's, there's souls that are departed from this life that have been cast into hell, and they're screaming in torment, asking for water, asking for mercy. So when you look at these two compartments here, they were the big circle that you could put, you could put hell at the top of it, put the golf and put in the middle of the hell, or at the top of hell, the place of comfort, and the bottom of it, the place of torment. And, you, and, I, and I can prove this from the Bible, that, that uh, after Jesus came and died on the cross of Calvary, that all changed. Because after he ascended back up into heaven and sprinkled the mercy seat, the Bible says before he ascended, he descended into the bowels of the earth. That's what the Bible says. And he went down and led captivity captive. So the the souls that had been waiting there, that were righteous souls from Adam up until the time Jesus died on the cross, they were waiting with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the Moses and all the Old Testament saints. Everybody was saved. They were all waiting in this place of comfort where good things were at, where there was water, where there was mercy, where there was love, and even where angels visited. You're know, say, I don't ever remember reading in the Bible where angels visited hell. Well, then you didn't look because I read it to you right here. It's found in verse 22. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And so when this beggar died, I can just see God saying uh, the angels that have been assigned to carry souls, righteous souls, went down and picked up his soul and they carried it right down into hell in that compartment that was place of comfort. They didn't visit the place of torment and the place of the flame, but they delivered. The angels would show up, and maybe Abraham could say, here comes some angels carrying another righteous soul, and they would deliver it. And then they would depart and probably go get another righteous soul. Angels delivered the souls of righteous people into Abraham's bosom. Hey, I didn't write this. God gave us this, so we would know. And and here's what, I know I can't prove this, but I like to think that if God used angels to go down and get righteous souls and deliver them into Abraham's bosom, after he died upon the cross of Calvary and he sprinkled his blood upon that mercy seat that was in the tabernacle of heaven, making it now possible for heaven's door to be opened so that now that when we die, we're uh, absent from our bodies, we're present with the Lord. That's what the Bible says. And the Bible tells us in Isaiah that there was no more need for Abraham's bosom or that place of paradise. So the Bible says that hell was then enlarged. And I just believe at that point, he removed the great gulf, and the whole place now is a place of torment. Would you agree with that, Brother Pastor? I believe that now the hell is still in the bowels of the earth, receiving the souls of people that never was given the gospel... And I don't care if it's your dad, your mom, your brothers, your sisters, your neighbor, the guy that you're working with, if he dies without Jesus Christ, he's going to go to this place of torment. And he's going to gnash his teeth, he's going to scream, he's going to beg for mercy, but there's no second chance. And we can stand there and say, I don't even believe in a place called hell. Well, then you don't believe the Bible because if I were to ask you if you believe in a place called heaven, you'd say, yeah, I believe that. Well, where did you get the idea that there was a heaven? Well, the Bible teaches. Okay, well, the same Bible teaches us there's a hell. You can't pick and choose from the Bible what you want. You've got to accept all the Word of God. And the Bible talks about there's a hell. And it's not fun to talk about it. It's not fun to preach about it. But we better get it in our mind that that's exactly what happens every single day that a person uh, on this earth uh, Opens. They go straight into hell every single day. The souls of people within St. Joe, Phoenix, Arizona, Israel—I don't care where they're at on the planet—if they die without hearing the gospel and receiving Jesus Christ their Savior, their soul is going straight into the place that the rich man went. Uh, it's just the way it is. So the place of comfort was a place of good things. That's what the Bible says. He has the good things now. Well, there must be good things in Abraham's bosom. There must be water there, or the rich man wouldn't have asked him to bring some water over. There must be mercy over there. There's fellowship over there because they're all fellowshipping. And in the place of torment, there's nothing but anguish and pain and sorrow and no mercy and no water and no comfort and no fellowship, no angels. In fact, when I read the Bible... The only read that I read in the New Testament, when a lost man dies, the Bible says they, the angels come and bind them hand and foot, and they don't carry them into hell and place them in the place of torment. The Bible says they're cast. They're cast. So there's a difference between being carried and being cast. A lost man's soul is cast into the place of that place of torment, down in the bowels of the earth. I don't know if the angels stand outside that circular part or whatever it is and they cast those souls into that place and those souls go into this place of torment. But he comes and he gets angels to take the soul. I like to believe that he still does that. I believe the Lord, when a righteous man dies today, I kind of think he's not going to change his method of getting them up to heaven. I think he's going to say, we've got some Christians that just died. You angels, go and get their souls and bring them to me, and they're going to carry our souls to heaven. You know, I've my 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 uh, wife's father died twenty six years ago, maybe at the age of sixty eight. He's a godly man, good deacon at Brother Joiner's church. Loved the Lord, and he had a heart condition. And I remember her sister saying he was standing by the she was standing by the bed. And Ben, who was right in his last moments, kind of raised up from the bed, pointed and said, here they come. And that's all he said, and he fell back on the bed and died. Now I don't know what that all means, but I kind of think that maybe maybe the Lord might have allowed him to see the angels coming to get him at that moment. Maybe, maybe for a righteous soul he could see, here they come. And he went back onto the pillow. And Gay, or Lynette, said, I'll never forget that he pointed right and said, Lynette, here here they come, and then he died. Now, not everybody has that experience like that, but I would like to think that maybe the Lord still comes and gets our souls as a heavenly Father and brings us to heaven. I want to talk to you a little bit about the torments this man went through. It doesn't say he just was tormented. It said he was being in torments. I want you to write these down, what they are. First of all, in verse 23 and 24, the Bible says, And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. I want to suggest to you something here that is maybe just indirectly mentioned, but the idea that he can see Lazarus and Abraham having fellowship together in each other's bosom. But I'm going to tell you, one of the torments of a man that dies without Jesus Christ and goes to hell, there is no fellowship in, it in the place of torment. Now, you'd say, well, what, what, how do you know that? Because you'll never find one place in God's Word where people in hell are talking to each other. That's never happening. You know, before I got saved... Uh, You know, my attitude about heaven and hell was like, I'm not interested in your religion. Don't come around. Don't leave me in your tracks. Uh, You know, I don't believe that Bible stuff, and I don't want to be a Bible thumper and all that. That was my attitude right up until I got saved. (laughs) I just didn't believe any of that stuff. I just figured that, uh, you know, I had adopted the philosophy of the world that if I live better than I live bad, then God will weigh my good out my bad, and I'll get to go to heaven. None of that's in the Bible either. You'd be surprised how many people have adopted that philosophy. So they think if they live good enough, they get to go to heaven. But we have the Bible that tells us that it's not by works of righteousness that you have done, but according to his mercy and his grace that he saves us. So it's not by works of that we have done. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. So we know that you can't live good enough to ever go to heaven. But I used to believe that, and, and so... Uh, the 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 idea of that was that uh, you know well if I die and go to hell they said if you don't get saved you're going to die and go to hell and you know my attitude was well good me and my buddies will have a beer bust down there and we'll just have a party and we'll all have a good time together and that's the way I used to talk that's the way I used to talk until I read the truth of the Bible then I found out in the Bible they ain't down there having beer busts and parties and they're not down there talking to each other. In fact, if you're cast into hell, you're going to feel as though, the Bible talks about it also being a place of darkness, which is almost like an oxymoron, because if it's a place of the flame, which gives off light and fire, at the same time, it's a place of darkness. But, but, but it's the idea that they're there, they're all alone, screaming for mercy, screaming for help, asking somebody to come and quench their tongue in this flame. And that's all they're doing is grinding their teeth and screaming out, and oh God, help me out of this place! There's no coming. There's nobody going to come. There's no, going to be no mercy there. There's no second chances there. I'm just telling you that that he he felt. I'm convinced that the rich man felt he was all alone there in that place with nobody to comfort him, nobody to help him. And so it's a place of sorrow where there is no mercy and no comfort and no one can help him. He was alone in his grief and his anguish and torment even though there was millions of people in that place of the flame all doing the same thing. They weren't concentrating on each other. They're concentrating on their own pain and anguish. That's what they're doing. There's no fellowship down there. Loneliness can be a torment. Even, Even in this life, if you feel like you're all alone, it's a tormenting thing to be alone. I remember years ago going to a nursing home in Phoenix, Arizona, and we start, we have five nursing home ministries at our church over the years, but the very first one that we had, we was there on Thunderbird Boulevard, and we would go there on Sundays to hold a service and preach and you know get them from their room down to the area and give a service and some music and so forth. I remember every time we pulled into the parking lot, we could hear, we could hear this. Help me! Help me! And then this woman's voice would spell the word. H-E-L-P! Help me! Help me! We'd get out of the car every single Sunday. We could hear that resonating off the parking lot in the building. And it was a, a woman in her 90s that was in the backside of the nursing home in a room at the end of the hallway away from the nurse's station. And we would go in there and we'd say, you know, Mrs. So-and-so is yelling for some help. Maybe you all need to go down there and check her out. And the nurse at the thing says, nah, she yells like that all day long. We got more to do than just go down there and tend to her. I said, well, what do you do to help her? We don't do anything to help her. You know, when it time to feed, we go down and get her and feed her. She just sits down there and yells, help me all this time. Spells help and screams out all the time. I said, well, "Was there anybody at rooms with her? No, she's all alone. And I thought to myself, when we would go down on Sundays and ask if she'd like to come down to the service, she'd always come down to the service with us. But when we would go in there, her face was always wet with tears. And as soon as we'd walk into the room, she'd go, help me. Take me out of here. Take me home. I want to go with you. Don't leave me in this place. I'm all alone. And we'd take her down to the service, and then we'd have to take her back to her room. As soon as we get in the room, she'd beg us not to leave her alone because of the torment. You know what I thought about? If it's if loneliness without any fellowship is that tormenting for a woman in a nursing home, how much more is it tormenting for somebody in a place called hell? I mean, we would come periodically and take her to a service, so she'd at least have that much fellowship. But she was lonely, and nobody came to give her water when she needed her or change her when she needed to be changed, or whatever the case might be, she'd just scream all day long for help. I'm telling you that you may not be able to hear it with your ears, but there's people right now in this place called hell that every single moment they're screaming, help me, help me, H-E-L-P, somebody come and help me. Every day that's happening. By millions of souls that walked the planet, that worked with you, that was your neighbor's, that you, that, you, that you shopped around and they died without Christ and now they're in that place. Below your feet, they're screaming for, for help. No help's going to ever come. I'm telling you, one of the torments I'm convinced, according to the Bible here, is this loneliness and absence of fellowship in a place called hell. Let me, let me give you another torment here, and this is something religious groups that we have, we have people today that are called Christians that don't even believe that there's a literal place called hell. We have religious groups that deny there's a place like that. But, but notice there in verse number 24 where he said, and have Lazarus come and dip his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. I'm going to suggest to you that another torment was not just the lack of fellowship, but was the flame itself. And you're sitting there saying, are you trying to tell me that when, when a soul gets thrown down or cast into the lake of fire of that hell, you're trying to tell me that that's a fire, that that's a flame, like we think of a flame? I believe it is. You say, well, what kind of flame could that be? I'm convinced that the Bible tells us what kind of flame it was. In fact, if you remember when Moses, who's mentioned in this passage, you remember when Moses, who was the deliverer of Israel, was on the backside of the desert, and you remember uh, he looked up into a mountain and he saw a bush that was burning, but it wasn't being consumed You remember that, that drew his attention? And the Bible says he went up there and he heard a voice of God saying, take off your shoes for the ground you're standing on is holy ground. And he took off his shoes and he fell before the Lord. But But he was enamored by the fact that this bush was putting off heat. It was a flame that was burning the bush, but it wasn't consuming the bush. It was a supernatural type of flame that God created for that bush. And I believe the same God that created hell for the devil and his angels has created a flame exactly the same way that when a soul is cast into there, they are, they're going to feel the heat, they're going to feel the torment, they're going to feel the pain, they're going to feel all those things that come with being in a fire, but their bodies or their, their souls are not going to be consumed. It isn't going to burn them up. Like our types of flame, if you threw a body in there, it would catch fire and after a while turn it to ash and that'd be the end of it. That's not the kind of flame that this is. This flame is an eternal flame a flame that isn't consuming the rich man. And by the way, isn't it interesting that we have like, what, 2,000 and some odd years when this guy lived and walked on this earth? Where's he at right now? I'll tell you exactly where he's at. Help me! Help me! He's still screaming after 2,000 and some years from the time that he died and went to this place. It hasn't changed. He's still tormented by the flame. He's still tormented because he has no fellowship. Then I want to suggest to you that he was tormented by his flashbacks, his mental flashbacks. Look at verse 25. And Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receiveth thy good things, and likewise uh, Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted, and thou art tormented. You know what Abraham was doing? He was recalling him. You you need to have a mental flashback to when you walked upon the earth and you ought to remember what it was like when you fared sumptuously every day and that beggar had to beg at your gate every single day and you wouldn't even give him the crumbs off your table. He was faced with a bunch of evil things upon this earth. Well, I'm telling you now, he said, now he's got the comforting things and you're facing those things that are not comfortable. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Something that really bugged me when I read this story <clears throat> is that I probably wouldn't have asked for Lazarus. If I was died and gone to hell and I mistreated that guy on the earth his whole life and I wouldn't give him water, wouldn't give him crumbs off my table, wouldn't do anything. And then I die and I go to hell and I look around and I can see Moses and Isaac and Abraham and all these other ones. And then all of a sudden I see the one that I tormented upon the earth. And then I'm going to say to him, Send him to comfort me. That's probably not the guy I would have asked for. I don't think I'd have asked for Lazarus. Why would you ask for the guy that you tormented on the earth to come and comfort you now while you're in hell? I mean, you've got to if he could see Abraham and he could see Lazarus, he could see Moses, he could see everybody else. Elijah, he could see all the greats of the Bible, and they're all in there fellowshipping. He could have stood there and said, Man, Elijah, have Elijah come and dip his finger in water. I probably wouldn't have asked for Lazarus, but he did. So he was tormented in the flame. He was tormented by his own flashbacks because he's being asked by Abraham to remember in your lifetime. And I'm just just convinced that having your memory of past lifetime when you lived upon this earth and the opportunities that you had to have gotten saved is going to torment you while you're in hell. I don't believe that you you're having your mind is not going to be a torment. I believe when you're down in hell, your mind remembering your past and remembering your life. I wrote down something, just his memory of the many opportunities he was given to be saved from his own sins. You know what's interesting? The rich man was not a Gentile. He was a Jew. You say it doesn't say he was a Jew. It's, it says that he called Abraham his father. Gentile wouldn't have called Abraham his father. Only a Jew would call Abraham his father. This was a Jewish rich man. You know what else I know about Jewish families? I know that according to Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, he said, uh, thou hast known the Holy Scriptures from a child. Do you know if you grow up today, even today, even if you're not an Orthodox Jew, even if you're in a Reformed Jewish family, that they still read things about the Old Testament? They still go through their Jewish things? I mean, they may not be saved, but they still practice those things. I mean, Jewish people know a lot about Old Testament stuff. They don't know much about the New Testament. And they don't like reading Isaiah 53 that speaks about Jesus dying in their place because then that means they'd have to accept Him as the Messiah. But they do know quite a bit. And if you're a child in a Jewish home, you were taught on a daily basis the Scriptures, the Moses and the prophets, as a child. And, they, and, and, and teaching that as a child was able to make you wise unto salvation. That's what the Bible says. And so I'm convinced that this guy is a Jew, which I believe he is. Then from a child, he knew the Holy Scriptures himself. And just because you read them, and just because you're taught them, doesn't make you saved either. What it tells me is that you can come to a church like an independent fundamental Baptist church, and you can hear preaching and be sitting here and know the Scriptures, and that doesn't mean that you're saved. It's able to make you wise unto salvation. It doesn't make you saved. It only makes you saved that if you'll embrace what the Bible says and believe it and accept it and put your faith in Jesus Christ, He'll in no wise cast you out and He'll save your soul. And by saving your soul, you never have to worry about going to hell. Never. So He's tormented by the lack of fellowship. He's tormented in the flame He's tormented by his own flashbacks and opportunities. And just the memory of people and maybe family and friends who tried to reach out to him and encourage him to be saved, but he rejected their witness to him. Think about that. Think about the people. Let's not. Let's move off the rich man and let's just talk about somebody that lived in St. Joe and you left tracks on their door and they just took the track and ripped it up. Maybe they read it, but then they didn't believe it. Or they were, hey, would you come to our revival, sir? Come to our missions guy. No, I'm not interested. And they die and go to hell. Remember in your lifetime, they're gonna have the memory. Man, I wish now I hadn't ripped that track up. I wish now I'd have gone to that church they invited me to. I wish now I'd have gone to that revival. I wish now I'd have listened to my parents. I wish now I'd have done it. I mean, all the things that they could have done, they're, they're going to, it's gonna to torment them. It's got to be a torment. And even our physical life itself, it's a tormenting thing to know when we've passed up opportunities that could have been. Maybe opportunities that could have made us a success or an opportunity that may have changed our life and our destiny, and we didn't do it. I'm convinced that Lazarus was obviously, knew the Lord, must have at times testified to the rich man. Now think about this a minute. Here, the Bible says, every day he laid at his gate. So here's this. Here's this beggar who knows the Lord. And he's right there at the gate, and the rich man goes by there every day. I'm convinced that one of the reasons why I know that Lazarus probably testified to him is because in a moment, you're gonna, he's not only asked for Lazarus to come and dip his finger in water, but of all the people that he's going to ask to come and testify to his family, he's going to ask Lazarus to do it. Why would you ask a man unless you knew he was already a testimony? He, he had already had heard the gospel from this man that sat at his gate and begged for mercy and said, would you help me? I want to help you. Hey, you know what? I, if I die, I'm going to heaven. You can go to heaven. And I could just see the rich man standing and going, I don't believe that, Chuck. Get off my front porch. And so just the fact that this rich man is going to be asking for Lazarus to come and dip his finger in water, I think he knows that Lazarus was a compassionate type. Of all the people that he knew upon the earth, he knew Lazarus was a compassionate type, a forgiving kind of a soul. In other words, if I ask for Lazarus to come and do it, he won't hold the grudge against me. He'll come. Well, he can't come because that gulf is fixed. There's not going to be any water. And so then he comes down here, not just to his flashbacks, but, but, but here's what I thought about. I, I thought about people who come to our churches and sit here, your pastor gets up and he preaches the gospel, and the invitation's given, and they know they're lost, or they know that they're not sure that they're going to heaven, and they, re- they deny the ability to come, and they walk out the door, and they walk out lost. And they come back a few times, and then after a while, it, they, the Holy Spirit almost stops striving with them, You know, I do believe that you can get to a point where the Spirit will stop striving with you. He did in the Old Testament. For 120 years, the Bible says the Spirit of God strived with them in the days of Noah, and at the end of that 120 years, the Holy Spirit was done striving with them. And that was the end of it. I'd hate to think that, you know, God God is so gracious. He's not just going to give you one opportunity and that's it. Although, He has the right to only give you one opportunity, and in fact, you don't even deserve, and I don't even deserve to have one opportunity. We all deserve to go to hell because of our sins. But because of God's grace, He, he, he gives us the gospel. He, he has people come to our door and ask us to be saved. And the preacher will stand there and say, if you're not sure, come on down the aisle. That's God speaking through the pastor, begging you to come and be saved. Why? Because the purpose of missions is to keep you from going to this place. I mean, boy, I'll tell you, when I got Winston's too in the Philippine Islands and they begin to start describing hell, it scared me to death. When I started to see that hell was a real place and people really go there and man, it's in the center of the earth and people that are, I, I don't want to go there. I mean, I didn't get saved just because I didn't want to go to hell, but I'll tell you, it played a role in it. <laughs> it played a role in it. I understand that you have to repent or otherwise you'll likewise perish. I understand repentance needs to be a part, It needs to be the first thing, turning to God, changing my mind. I'll tell you, after I got witness to enough, my mind was being changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. I was ready to turn to God and call out to God. And I remember when I fell down at that couch that night on September the 15th, 1970, and I was begging God, I was crying, and I said, oh God, I don't want to go to hell, please. I'm asking you to forgive me my sins. I don't want to sin anymore. I want to be a Christian. I want to go to heaven. I mean, I I was just begging him to save me. I was ready to be saved. And it was genuine in my heart. I didn't want to live a life of sin anymore. I wanted to live for the Lord. I wanted to try to reach others. Because if this is real and it is real, then I have a responsibility to tell somebody else about it so that they don't go to this place. Let me close by giving you the last torment. I think probably for this man might have been worse than all the rest. It's found in verse 27. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him, that's Lazarus. To my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. He's saying, Okay, I know there's no hope for me, I know there's no mercy, I know there's no water, but if you would just send Lazarus, I've got five brothers that still live upon the surface of the earth. They haven't died yet. Send Lazarus to testify lest they also come into this place of torment. And I know I have four brothers that I don't think is saved. And I've witnessed to my brothers many, many times. But I beg God, please, wherever they live down there in Florida, Please let somebody go and testify to them before they die. My oldest brother's going to be 75 years old. He's as lost as a goose going north in a snowstorm. I've got another brother that's an alcoholic and a smoker and been married two or three times and he'd never darkened the door of a church. And he, All four of my brothers will tell you they know the Lord. But I'm telling you, by the way they live and the way they act and the way they talk and so forth. And I'm not judging them by their works. I'm just simply telling you, I don't know of a time where they've ever repented of their sins and turned to God. And, and, and if they are saved, they got a different kind of salvation that what caused me to turn to God and serve God and keep on serving God for 49 years. It's not a matter of me just getting Jesus for, you know, a high with Jesus over one, one time of praying. But I beg God, please, they're not going to listen to me, somebody go tell them so they don't go to this place. I can't, I, I, I can't imagine. I was so glad when my mom and dad walked down the aisle of an independent Baptist church in Michigan a year or so after I got saved, my dad and my mom, I, as soon as I came back from Vietnam and Thailand, <coughs> I had been saved there in the Philippines and I went home and the first thing I wanted to do was tell my mom and dad about Christ my brothers about Christ and their wives they didn't want to hear it my dad said what happened to you did you get religion you you, you 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 got some high religion thing I said no dad I got saved what's that mean I said that means God's changed my life I said I'm, I'm telling you I'm not going to hell now well we'll see we'll we'll just see if it's real my dad said we'll watch you a while We'll just see if you're going to go to church next Sunday and the Sunday after that, and if you read a Bible and all this. I've met people like you, get religion. I I, I, I want to see it. Well, that motivated me to even want to live it more. So for a whole year or so, man, I never missed church. I didn't do anything. And I wasn't just doing it to prove something to my dad. I wanted to read the Bible and I wanted to grow and I wanted to be in church. And after about a year or so, my dad walked up to me and he said, are you going to church tonight? down there at the little the little uh, Grange Hall in Leslie, Michigan. I said, yeah, Dad, I am. He said, well, me and your mother would like to go with you. And I said, really? He goes, yeah. He said, is that all right? And I said, yeah. <laughs> it's what I've been praying for. So my mom and dad went that night, and I was hoping that the preacher would be preaching on hell that night to scare the pants off my dad and the dress off my mother and just make them run down the aisle and get saved. But no, they had a missionary there that night. I thought in my mind, oh no, you know, he's going to preach a little three-point and a poem, and that'll never convince my mom and dad. But it just goes to show you, that's about what he did. And when the invitation came, my mother stepped right out, moved down the aisle, and walked right down the aisle. I went, like, wow, I'm standing next to my dad." I wanted to say, Dad, I'll go with you, but I didn't want to make him feel he had to go. I wanted it to be his decision, so I didn't say anything. A couple of minutes later, he goes, get out of the way. And he moved me out of the way, and he walked down the aisle, and he knelt. And Brother Reed, the pastor, dealt with my dad, and Mrs. Reed dealt with my mother. And from that point on, I saw a big change in my mom and dad. I saw lives changed. In the 10 years they lived there in Michigan, they had never missed any church service. Dad became a deacon. My dad even sang in the church, made everybody endure it. You know, He became a deacon in the church. I remember my dad selling my brothers that still weren't saved. My brothers always seemed to come over on a Sunday night around 4 o'clock. My dad was back getting ready. The services were at 5. And dad, they'd say, where are you going? Dad said, I'm going to church. He said, well, we came out here to see you and mom. Dad said, well, that's fine. You can go to church with us. And he said, we're not going to church. And he said, well, then you can see me when I get back from church. Well, I thought you'd stay here. No, we have church. We're going. My mom, my mother was not quite as, you know, sometimes she would say, well, Terry, why don't you go and I'll stay here. The grandkids are here and stuff. And uh, that wasn't always the best thing. My mom didn't always go with my dad. I mean, most of the time she did, but she'd give in, but my dad, no, not him, he'd stand there and say, no, you want to go to church? He said, you know, you come here every Sunday at four o'clock. It's as though you're coming to keep me out of church. Now you can come to church with us and then we can fellowship and we can do whatever you want to do, but I'm not going to miss church just because you show up right before I go to church. (laughs) I mean, he was pretty straightforward about it. Change came over him. He got saved. The things of God became a priority in his life. This man is begging, listen folks, I'm going to close. This man's begging from hell, from somebody on the earth to go and witness to their five brothers. And here's what struck me, that people in hell have a greater burden for their families than Christians have for their families. They're begging somebody to go testify. Who's going to testify to those five brothers? Who's going to testify to my four brothers? Who's going to testify to your boss? Who's going to testify to your neighbor? Who's going to testify to those kids in that department that ride the bus? Who's going to testify to them? Somebody down in hell knows that if they don't get saved, they're also going to come to this place of torment. And they don't want them there. They know the anguish they're going through and they're saying, Please, somebody, tell them about Jesus Christ. I was told and I rejected it. And Abraham said, I can't send Lazarus to testify to your brothers. Well, then notice what he says here. He said, Abraham said unto him, uh, they have Moses and the prophets. Let your brothers, or let them hear Moses and the prophets. You know what he's saying? He's saying, no, your brothers have the same Bible. Moses and the prophets are just the word of God. They have the Bible. If your brothers won't believe the Bible, then they haven't got a chance. Because that's what you have to believe. There's no substitute, folks, for the, for the gospel. There's no substitute for the Bible. This is what we give people right out of the Bible. We don't give them something else. And so he goes, oh, he, he says, no, that's not going to work. My brothers are not going to listen to the Bible. Now, I'm paraphrasing it, but that's what he's saying. He said, no, nay, Father Abraham. No, they, they won't listen to Moses and the prophets. Don't send him back there to do that. Really what he was asking for is a substitute to the Bible because he knew when he walked through his gate, he didn't listen to the Bible either. And by the way, his five brothers would come over for Jewish holidays and they would pass by that same gate to go into those holidays that the Jews had. They would see the same beggar and that beggar would testify to them and he knows, hey, Lazarus, don't send Lazarus. They didn't listen to him before. They're not going to listen to the Bible. I'm here to tell you, if man doesn't listen to the Bible, there is no substitute to going to heaven except for the Bible. That's the only thing we can give them. So what does he say to him? He said, nay, they they have Moses and the prophets. Your brothers can listen to them. And he said, no, nay, Father Abraham. But if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said unto him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. You know why I know that's true? Because there's already been one who did rose from the dead and rise from the dead and walked on the earth for 40 days and five, five more than 500 brethren. And he witnessed to some and it didn't change the hearts of any of those people. And he came back from life and they knew that he'd lived upon this earth. So he was basically saying, hey, even if somebody rose from the dead that they knew was once alive, that ain't going to persuade them either. No, they're going to have to believe the scriptures. They're going to have to believe the Bible or they're not going to get saved. And I'm here to tell you tonight that missions is about giving people in your community the Bible. And I'm, I'm convinced this is going to happen. And by the way, if you read the book of Daniel, you'll, you're going to know this, but I'm going to be at the great white throne judgment, witnessing those that are cast into the lake of fire. Because the Bible talks about us being there and witnessing it. I'm not going to be one judge because I've already had my sins forgiven under the blood of Christ. I'm not going to hell. I'm going to face the judgment seat of Christ as a Christian to determine what I've done in this body, whether it's be good or bad, whether I can get rewards or not. But, but, but the great white throne judgment is at the end of the millennial reign of all the unsaved dead upon the earth. Whether they're in hell or whether they're in the sea or whether they're in the graves, all the graves that are left that haven't been opened at the rapture, all the unsaved graves are going to be opened and all the dead, small and great, are going to stand before God. And the books are going to be open. And those books are going to be open are books of showing them you had opportunity. It was written right here in the book. And by the way, I'm convinced that the Bible teaches that the only reason they're being judged there, it's not to determine whether they go to heaven. If you're at the great white throne judgment, you are going into the lake of fire. There isn't going to be a determination there. The only reason that great white throne judgment is there is to determine the degree of punishment that you're going to have in the lake of fire. You know how I know that? Because the Bible says that when Jesus said, if I had done the works that I had done in Capernaum and in Nazareth, that if I had done that in Tyre and Sidon, He said they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for those of Tyre and Sidon than it will be for those in Capernaum. Why? Because the people of Capernaum had more opportunities to repent and they rejected it. So when they die, Jesus is going to put them in the lake of fire and it's going to be more tormenting for those who tread upon the blood of Christ than those who had never heard and yet they're still going to go there. Don't don't ever think in your mind that the great white throne judgment is to determine by the works who's coming to heaven or not. That's totally out of context. Only the unsaved. The Bible says the hell will deliver up the souls that are in them. And the sea will deliver up the souls that are in them. And death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire. And whosoever's name is not found written in the book of life shall be cast into the lake of fire. Now I'm going to tell you right now. You're in a missions conference. Don't get in your mind because you put $5, $10 or $20 or $100 or $200 a week or $500 a week that you're doing your part to send somebody else to go to Africa or Israel to tell somebody else about Christ. You have a responsibility to reach your Jerusalem for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're going to be responsible and I'm going to be responsible for the world that I live in. I am their missionary. And if I'm not doing my part, then those souls are going to go to this very place. And I'm telling you, I'm standing here tonight saying, I'm guilty of times that I could have witnessed. And there are people that are saying, help me. Help me. I can't do anything about it now. But I'll tell you what it does. It motivates me to do something. I can't do anything about the past. I can't do anything about the family members of my family that may have already died and gone to hell. And I don't even like to think about what they're going through in this place like this rich man. I can't do anything about their past but I can sure do something about the people that are still alive. I can give them a track. I can plant a seed. I can invite them to church. I can tell them what Jesus did for me. You sang that song tonight to testify what he's done in your life. You say, well, I don't know the Bible that much. Well, maybe you ought to know it a little bit more, but you know, you don't really need to know a lot about the Bible. All you got to do is just tell them what Jesus did for you. Give your testimony. That's what I do when I witness to people. And I know a lot of scriptures. I can go through the Romans road and memorize those scriptures and give it to them. But I always, every time that I witness to somebody, I always tell them what Jesus did for me in the Philippine Islands. I give them my testimony. Because I want them to know my life's been changed. And God can change your life as well if you'll be saved. And I don't care how old you are. You can be, if you've reached that age to where you're now accountable for your sins... Then I'm telling you, you can be a teenager, a junior higher. You can be eight or nine years old or whatever. You die without Jesus Christ, you're going to join the rich man for all eternity. And there's no way anybody's going to be able to help you. Why would you want to deny Jesus Christ and his love on Calvary when all you've got to do is make a decision to repent of your sins and call upon his name and he'll come into your heart and soul put your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you're on your way to heaven. You're going to miss this place. Thank God I'm not going there. Thank God I'm not going to hell. But God, would you make me a better witness to be a little bit more proactive? You guys have got church track racks out here. Every time you come to church, those racks ought to be completely emptied out. You ought to grab them, pass them out. Well, people won't take them. You know what's amazing? I've never had hardly anybody ever reject me. I hand it to them, and they'll say, well, thank you very much. I'd say, if you don't have a church home, there's a church here that would, and on the back's the plan of salvation. If you get a chance on your break or whatever, read that sometime. Hey, it was nice meeting you. At least gave gave them that. You think about your own life tonight, and this week, it's now Friday, since last Sunday, I'm just asking you to think about it. How many people did you witness to? How many people did you give a tract to? How many people did you even give your testimony to? What I'm trying to say to you is the most neglected responsibility in our Christian lives is our neglect to tell people what Jesus has done for us. And we ought to do more of it. I'm going to ask you to stand with me tonight. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And I know this, I've gone over and so forth, but I'm just telling you this is a very, very, very important message. And it ought to change your heart and your life. People that you've been around for weeks and months and friends, you have them over at your house. You have a good time, they're your friends, but if you ever told them one time, so that if they die without Jesus Christ, they can never point their finger at you and say, you were a Christian, you never told me. Because I told you, you're going to be there to witness them. And I can't prove it from the Bible that they're going to look out in that crowd because there will be a lot of millions of Christians there. But I'd hate to think that if they looked out there and saw me, and I saw them, I will tell you this, I can prove from the Bible that the tears that are going to be in heaven are not going to be removed until after the great white throne judgment tears i'm wondering if some of those tears are going to come from us and then the bible says in revelation 21 then he wipes away the tears could it be that maybe we're going to have some tears that i she was my neighbor that was my boss and i'm crying because i know they can't do anything about it now but folks listen to me you can do something about it now you could change tomorrow and it might just might just make it possible that the people you witness to get saved. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Father, I pray that you'll take the truths of this message in your Bible, and Lord, help us to get a greater burden for our own community. Yes, we do need to give financially. Yes, we do need to increase to get some more missionaries to go to countries. But we need to do our part right here in this community. And I pray you'll give them the power and the grace to open their mouth and tell somebody. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being in the services today with us at Riverside Baptist Church. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, we certainly would like to help you with that. You can get more information at our website at rbcstjoe.com or call here at the church. If you're a believer and God has spoken to your heart, I hope you'll take time to turn aside and let him have his way in your life. If we can help in any way, shape, or form, please feel free to contact us. We look forward to ministering to you again.